taking care of our bodies. WAGP Beaufort. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you for the next hour to the Bible line. If you're tuning in for the very first time, this is a call-in dialogue where you can call with questions you may have concerning God's word as you've been studying it or personal challenge you're facing in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. Uh, the numbers that you can reach us at locally, it's 525-1859 or toll free at 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980. We live stream through the internet around the world. And so uh, we welcome our live stream partners that are with us today. And if you're not aware of that, you can go to WAGP.net and carry WAGP with us on your cell phone or wherever you may go. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. And we welcome questions as they come in, however they come in. And people do, I should say, email us. And we get a lot of email questions every week. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. And indeed, we do have an emailed question from Barry, who lives in Phoenix, Arizona. He would like to know, what do you think of King James Version only argument based on Psalm 12:6 that the King James uh, Version... Uh, is um, the final byproduct of a seven-stage refinement process. Uh, It's an interesting statement, and from time to time when you meet people in the King James-only camp, uh, they will use this argument. They'll say, um, let me read Psalm 12, verse 6. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. And so metaphorically here, the psalmist, in this case, King David, compares God's word to silver that's refined and refined and and so forth. What he's saying is it's just as silver that has been refined seven times so that you have an absolutely pure product. He's comparing God's word to that. I don't think he's saying that... um, uh, that the word of God goes through a process of purification. That's what some of the King James people uh, have argued over the years. And they usually do it on two lines. They either say, well, there was a language process, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Syrian, Latin, German, down to English. And the English is the ultimate, most refined translation. Or some would argue it's simply from the English side. Well, there was the Gothic Bible, the Anglo-Saxon Bible, the pre-Wycliffe, the Wycliffe, the Tyndall, the Coverdale, uh, the Gen- Geneva, and they combine those three together, the Bishop's Bible, and then ultimately the King James Bible. Uh, it's, uh, it's really a fallacious argument, and if you think about it, what they are really saying is that inspiration is going through a process where God's Word is purified, and that's not true. Um, God's Word, when the moment it was penned, 
through the apostles, uh, those writers that God used to pen Holy Scripture, it was absolutely pure at that moment. It doesn't go through a refining process. Interestingly, people who are King James only folks, uh, many of them have never read the introduction to the 1611 King James Bible. And uh, a few years ago, I taught a course in Bibliology, the Doctrine of the Bible, and it was quite long. It lasted almost a year. In one of the uh, sections of the course, if I remember, if those who are interested want to look at this, it's section six on the Bibliology course. And in that section, we deal with English translations of the Bible, and we look at the history of the English Bible. And one of the things that we note is uh, the King James Bible and in it, the introduction. A few years ago um, in 2011, that's actually when we did the course, uh, they had the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible and they reprinted old King James Bibles um, and included what was the original introduction. And you can go online and you can find the original introduction. It's very difficult to read in the old English just so... just because some of the words are foreign, but there are modern-day translations of it. In either case, it's very clear whether you're reading the original or modern-day translation where the words and the letters are updated to the 21st century, that even the writers of the King James Bible noted in their introduction that there was a number of Greek and Hebrew words that they were uncertain of, Uh, They needed to study these issues in more depth, that there would be later translations, not just possibly by them, but by other people who would have a more precise knowledge of the original languages and be able to uh, render them accordingly. So they admitted that. In fact, when people say, I'm a 1611 King James only, uh, one, today, people today are not reading the 1611. They're reading the 1769, which is the fifth revision, because there's about 100,000 changes from the 1611 to the 1769, because our English language was changing so fast, and a lot of words that met, meant one thing in one century came to take on an entirely different nuance in another century. But when you say even 1611, you have to say, well, which 1611? Because first they produced one uh, with what they had, and they continued their study, and they only printed a short number of the first 1611. And later in the same year, there came out a second edition of the 1611 Bible that uh, had even more changes because they had found additional manuscripts and additional word studies on some Hebrew and Greek words that were not Uh, readily available to them in the first 1611 translation. So it's a silly argument. Uh, There's no scholarship or really even logical thought to it. Uh, Good question. I think we have a live caller, so we always give them preference. So let's go there, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. My name is uh, Dan Tigo. How you doing, Dr. Brogy? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for calling today. Yes, sir. I have a question about um, Genesis 2 and 18 where God said that it's not good that man should be alone. Um, when in the seven day create or the six day of uh, six days of creation, um, God created everything that was good. Why was the creation of man not good according to Genesis two and eighteen? Well, it's a good question. He says it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good with every day of creation and even on the sixth day, some of the things he made before he made man. But he didn't say that man was not good. He said it is not good 
for a man to be alone. And so while he had made man, who was a um, good creation of God, what he did add was that it was not good for man to be all by himself. And so he says, I'm going to make uh, for Adam a helper suitable and a person that would uh, basically come alongside of Adam and together they would complete their oneness in the Lord. So this is a general principle, by the way, that applies to this day. Generally speaking, it is not good for a person to be alone, to be single, that God has created most of us. Uh, to be married at some point in our life. Uh, His ideal is one man, one woman, until death severs the relationship. With that said, there are exceptions to the rule. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, he says, I wish all men were even as I myself am, in the context, single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so God has created some men and some, some women to be single their entire life. And there's actually an advantage to singleness when he will dialogue a little bit later in that chapter. Uh, let me see. Here it is in verse 33. He says, one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. Uh, versus the person who is unmarried, he says, is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. Now, that has to be taken in the context of this chapter and in the broader reference of the Holy Scripture. Uh, Paul is not saying that married people are worldly, but he is saying that they have a divided interest, which is part of God's will and purpose for their life. When I was a single man, I would often leave the house at 6.30 in the morning and be in ministry, and I would come home at midnight, and I'd get up the next morning and do it all over again. When I got married, that changed. When I had children, that changed even more. And so your focus and your responsibility changes as a married person. But generally speaking, it is God's will for people to be married. And Genesis affirms that early on, and other passages of Scripture echo the same truth, as did the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter. chapter 19. So he's not saying that man is not good. Man, everything that God created, he created perfect. Man is about to become not good through his fall and his sinful decision. But here he's saying it is not good that man be alone. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yes, sir. It does. All right. Great question. Appreciate it. All right, Rick, uh, let's go to our next question today. I think we have another email that came in. We do indeed. Owen in Kentucky would like to know, what is the name of your church and is it the Church of Christ? No, um, there are a group of churches that uh, form what's called the Churches of Christ. They don't even like to call themselves a denomination because they see denominations as something that come later on in the history of the church. And so they basically argue that we're the original line uh, that Christ established, the Church of Christ. Um, But no, we're not Church of Christ, especially in our doctrine. Uh, typical of Church of Christ, and there are certainly some exceptions to this, uh, and this would also typically be true of the Christian church denomination, such and such Christian church. Now, you may come across one of those and discover that they're not associated with that denomination or group of churches, and they just have the title uh, in their church name. But typically, Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church Movement, and the Churches of Christ, all that came out of the same center, have some common doctrines, some different in some areas, but one of the common doctrines is what we would call baptismal regeneration. 
And to me, it clouds the gospel. And in many of those churches, it becomes a different gospel. Uh, They teach that baptism is part of the plan of salvation. Therefore, if you are not baptized, you will not be saved. And the verse that they often use is uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. This would certainly be one of their headquarter verses that uh, they would argue from. And it's the day of Pentecost. And in 2.38, Peter says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The word for is uh, translates a number of different Greek words into the English Bible. And different Greek words can have different nuances, just like in English, the word for can have different nuances. Do I give you, uh, am I saying here, is Peter saying here that you are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin in terms of in order to be forgiven? That's the way the Church of Christ, the Christian Church and Disciples of Christ denominations typically take it. And so now baptism becomes part of the plan of salvation. And therefore, if you are not baptized, you are lost. Uh, That's a different gospel. If you add anything to the death, burial, and resurrection, then you're preaching a different gospel. Or does the word for, like in English, mean because of? I give you a medal for your bravery, not in order to be brave, but because you were brave. And I think that's really the nuance here. In fact, that's the nuance of the word used in other places. Um, They repented for or at the preaching of John, same word used in Luke's gospel, not, not in order to, but because of. And so clearly that's, that's the thought here. And again, letting scripture interpret scripture, if baptism is a work of righteousness, and it is, and the scripture says we're not saved by works done in righteousness, then you cannot argue that it's part of the plan of salvation. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance that what I, what I received, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel. And then he defines it as the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, period. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. Not to mention in the same letter in 1 Corinthians 1 and in verse um, 17, let me just turn there so I don't misquote it, uh, Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should be made void. But in the early part of that verse, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul clearly separates in this statement, baptism from the gospel. Uh, It can't be a part of the gospel. So uh, I would not want someone to refer to Community Bible Church as Church of Christ in the traditional definition because I would reject what they teach in the most fundamental area. There are secondary issues that good people can differ on. The Church of Christ can think, well, we shouldn't have certain musical instruments in the church or we should sing a cappella or whatever, and, or we should have the Lord's Supper every single week instead of once a month. or uh, you know. And there are some secondary issues that, good Christian people can differ over and still be counted as true believers. But you cannot teach that baptism is part of the plan of salvation and be counted as a true believer. You are preaching a different gospel and you come under the same Galatian error where they added just a single work to the finished work of Christ. And Paul said that's a different gospel and one who preaches it is to be anathema. They come under a curse. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. A caller just dictated their question. In John 5, verses 1 to 10, 
Uh, the pool at Bethesda is mentioned, and this caller would like to know if this pool is still in existence. And also, uh, he would like you to please explain about the healing that was taking place in this pool. I preached through the Gospel of John, so you might want to go ahead and go to searchthescriptures.org. And by the way, for those who may not know it, we now have a phone app so that you can, from if you have a smartphone, go there and download any sermon that you want to listen to for free and enjoy it and listen to it at your own time and, and pace. Um, but yes, we, uh, we know where the Pool of Bethesda is. Uh, I'm going, God willing, back to Israel in this calendar year. Uh, again, you can go to the church website or search the scriptures website for detail. Do we have it up on the STS website, the Israel mm, brochure? Not yet, but we will. Okay, so um, in either of those uh, places, and um, we will go to the Pool of Bethesda, and it's right there in the city of Jerusalem in the old city. And uh, the, the point of debate uh, comes with this man who is uh, healed it says, in these days lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first after the stirring up of the water stepped in and was made well from whatever disease which he was afflicted. If you are using the NIV Bible, it skips uh the latter half of verse three and all of verse four, um, and all of a sudden you you go from verse the end of verse three, where it says there were those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, and a certain man was there, and it just kind of skips that whole portion. Um, I do believe, as the New American Standard indicates, that it should be included in the original text, and I go through six or seven different reasons there. Uh, in my sermon on John chapter 5, much like I go through 11 reasons in John chapter 8 for the first half of that chapter of the woman caught in adultery. And some people say, well, it's not in certain manuscripts. But uh, I would argue for its inclusion. And the New American Standard does put it in brackets just as a point of integrity to say that there are some manuscripts that is, these words are not contained in. But because they believe that they deserve to be here um, for good reason, uh, and it gets into this whole science of, um, of textual criticism, uh, not criticizing the Bible, but the term they're being used to evaluate certain notes, whether it was a scribal note or something that God inspired. And that's the challenge in a few places. Somebody as well said we have a, 101% of the Bible. And so sometimes our challenge is to figure out what is the original 100%. And what could happen if you opened my Bible all the way through it, you'd see underlining and things that I'll write out in the margin that have helped me in my personal study or things God's taught me. And, and they would do the same thing, uh, people who would have a page of Scripture, uh, except they did it a little bit differently. They didn't have margins because paper was so valuable and so costly. They wrote from end to end with uh, no spaces, even sometimes between words and sentences. And so your mind would have to supply, oh, that's the end of a sentence and the start of a new one. And if you had a note 
you might even put that at the end of the sentence and you would know it because it was your own personal copy. And so if your personal copy of scripture was copied by a friend because he wanted a copy of uh, what would later be termed, you know, John chapter five, because the chapter and verse divisions come, as you know, about a thousand years after the Bible's completed. Uh, and he wanted that page of scripture. He might copy it in, in the process, copy your notes. And so then a copy of a copy of a copy is made. And so what textual criticism says, well, what was the original part that God inspired? And there are a handful of places in the Bible that change absolutely nothing in terms of doctrine or belief or anything. Uh, but I do believe that this should be included. And I go through six or seven reasons there in uh, my sermon on John chapter five, where if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can download it. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, uh, Bonnie in Bluffton writes, does God tell Moses to lie to Pharaoh about letting the people go on a three-day journey in the wilderness? Since he doesn't intend to have them return to Egypt, is this a misleading truth? Yet God can't lie. Well, you're right. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says God cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17, it says it is impossible for God to lie. God is described in a number of the Psalms as the God of truth, and indeed he is. Uh, Balaam, who is actually a false prophet, um, interestingly, the Holy Spirit came upon him and spoke scripture, and his words are as inspired as uh, the Apostle Paul's or the Apostle Peter's when he spoke with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if God, God can speak through whatever means he wants, sometimes people will argue with me and they'll say, well, pastor, you're kind of old fashioned to say that, you know, women should not be pastors today. You know, Paul, that was just his culture. And, you know, he was a little bit chauvinistic. And so some of his sinful tendencies and thoughts, uh, bled through the pages of scripture. Absolutely not. The men who wrote the Bible were fallible sinners like all of us. But nonetheless, they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when they recorded God's view on something, they recorded it with absolute authority and infallibility. And so we're reminded of the infallibility of God's word when you have someone even like Balaam, who speaks, who the New Testament tells us is an unbeliever, an apostate, but the Holy Spirit came upon him anyway so that he could not curse Israel, but only bless Israel. Uh, before Balak, uh, the king of, uh, uh, was it Peor or Beor? I can't remember. Um, and in either case, uh, he speaks with infallibility. So inspiration is not based on the trustworthiness or the perfectness or the infallibility of the one writing or speaking, but on God who speaks and writes through that individual. With all that said, he says, God is not a man that he should lie. God is not like man that he would ever lie. God cannot lie. So whenever God speaks, he speaks the truth. And so God never uses deception to accomplish his purposes. And so here in Exodus 3, it says, and uh, God is commissioning Moses to go to Pharaoh and they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God comes up again in, um, Exodus chapter five. Uh, the Pharaoh gets a little bent out of shape over what's happening, increases the labor of the Jewish people and they come and, 
Uh, they say to Pharaoh here, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Um, and again, I think it's stated one other time in um, chapter uh, 8, the end of chapter 8. So three times he makes this statement about going into the wilderness. He's not deceiving Pharaoh. God is actually trying to work with Pharaoh. God is trying to give him uh, an incremental step, as it were. Uh, He's giving him a baby step of faith uh, in preparation for a bigger test, namely to let them go entirely and to leave Egypt. And I really believe, uh, and we'll study this when we come to Romans, well, we're actually in Romans, the ninth chapter now, and we'll be there for the next seven or eight weeks. And we're dealing with issues like predestination and election. And does God, you know, elect some people to, to go to hell and elect other people to go to heaven? And was uh, Pharaoh just, a, a, Pharaoh just a, a puppet in the hand of God where he had no choice? And, uh, and so we're going to look at this man in great detail. But uh, God was really trying to work with this man. And I, I really believe had he responded to this small step of faith that the Lord would have softened his heart instead of hardened his heart. And uh, he would have come to, to terms. Now, God, who's omniscient, tells Moses in advance that he's not going to respond, but he in no way diminishes the free will of man and his omniscience. And that's a beautiful example of it. Um, and so uh, I hadn't really thought about that until right now in terms of relating that to Romans 9, but the two really, you know, uh, fit hand in, in, in glove. So that's a great question. So no, um, God was giving uh, Pharaoh a chance to respond, and he doesn't respond, and he hardens his heart. And in response to his first hardening his heart, God, in response, hardens Pharaoh's heart. The opposite could have happened, but it didn't. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. And Pastor, I'm going to allow you to to do a double. We're going to read two questions, but they're both along the same lines. Okay, good. All right. The Jackson family in Shelburne, New Hampshire writes, are Christians, specifically my family, to be considered pagan practicers since we celebrate the Lord's birth? Uh, This debate arose recently amongst some friends of ours with more of a persuasion towards the Reformed theology. They made it clear that celebrating Christmas is a pagan activity and true Christians should avoid the celebration altogether to even include Easter, birthdays, etc. They say no one celebrated the Lord's birth in New Testament times. It wasn't until around the 3rd century that this was made effective under Constantine's leadership. They cite passages like Genesis where Cain's offer was not accepted. Leviticus 10, Jeremiah 10, Deuteronomy 1, uh, 12 rather, 2 through 4, and Romans 14, 5 to 6. and they associate this reference to holy days. They, us, uh, versus, uh, anyway, they say it violates the biblical principle that it's something and should uh, is not commanded and shouldn't be practices. Guys like Paul Washer and Brian Shortley reference to support this belief. It seems they, these preachers, also have a deep dislike for the Roman Catholic people in their sermons. Uh, I would enjoy your response to this inquiry. Uh, well, we're still in the Christmas season. Needless to say, this came a couple of uh, weeks ago. And then Ray from Beaufort writes, why do Christians celebrate Christmas? And on the day of December 25th, I keep hearing conflicting answers and would like to be directed to some scripture. Well, the Bible does not give us the date in which Jesus was physically born through Mary's womb into the world. 
there have been different dates that have been suggested over the centuries. Some have said October, some have said March. Uh, John Chrysostom, who was probably the premier expository preacher in the fourth century, said with absolute finality that it was definitely December the 25th. Now, most people have a deep respect for him as a preacher and as someone of uh, integrity. Again, the Bible does not record it, so the only thing that you could go upon would be tradition. Uh, The Orthodox Church, uh, they put it in January because they are working uh, not off of the Julian calendar, uh, but a different calendar, and it... Uh, our calendar is kind of a combination of a, the sun and the lunar calendar brought together, and it gets really complicated and high-tech, but they put it in January, um, not because they view December 25th as a different date, but because they're on a different calendar. Lay all that aside, the Bible doesn't give us a date. So whatever date someone comes up with is going to be uh, based on tradition. And certainly there are some traditions in the church that are better established and maybe have more support than others. But you wouldn't certainly want to build a doctrine over a tradition. Uh, And unfortunately, there are groups that do that to this day. Um, Some would argue, well, we have no picture anywhere in the Acts of the Apostles or in the epistles where the church really celebrates the Incarnation. Well, that's true. I mean, there's not an official day where they celebrate the Incarnation. In fact, if uh, the Lord asks us to remember anything, it's not so much his birth as it is his death and resurrection and the fact that he's coming again. And we do that, of course, every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine or drink this cup, not wine, it doesn't say wine in the Bible, uh, but cup, um, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Um, so we're really proclaiming his death and resurrection, the one who is coming again. Uh, and so we are called to remember that, uh, the origins, you know, again, even some of the dates of the origin are open for debate, but there was certainly a holiday in, uh, Rome called the feast of Sardinalia that was December the 17th through the 24th. And it was certainly a pagan holiday. There was much rivalry and uh, immorality and the exchange of gifts. And so as the empire developed and became more Christianized, they saw an opportunity to replace this pagan celebration with one that was more Christian. And so some would say, well, that's why they chose at the end of one celebration, December the 25th. And again, you know, maybe they chose it not because it was the end of the Feast of Sardinalia, but maybe because, as John Chrysostom argues, that that was the established date for the Incarnation in Bethlehem. We don't know. So it's conjecture on my part or anyone else's part because we cannot say definitively. In either case, what they did was a good thing, I think, and that they saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And certainly at Christmas time, if you remember the Incarnation, apart from his death and resurrection, then you've created an imbalance in your theology. And so many people are happy to celebrate Jesus as a baby, but not as the Lord of life, not as the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So if we are going to celebrate the incarnation, and I have no problem with that because the Bible says he became a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's one of our 
affirmations in the Christian faith uh, that we um, affirm and believe and preach and teach. And of course, the whole reason he did that was so that um, he might ultimately die on the cross. Um, it says, "In uh, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This is 1 Timothy 3. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up into glory. This, it appears, was a common confession that Paul quotes. Some say it was a hymn that was sung, and it becomes part of the Holy Scripture under the inspiration of God. Sometimes God will quote a source, and when he quotes it, then that source becomes part of Holy Scripture. And Paul takes a common confession of the day that affirms that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. And that's an important confession that we make because Gnosticism, you know, denied the uh, humanity of Christ, and which becomes a full-blown heresy in the century following the completion of the Bible. And so, you know, today, sometimes we deal with people who deny the deity of Christ, but not his humanity. Uh, they dealt with both those, some who denied his deity, but others who denied his humanity. So it's a good thing to affirm his humanity. And it's certainly an opportunity as the um, third century church saw it to be able to, um, fourth century really, uh, to proclaim that Jesus is God in human flesh. And so I look at Christmas every year, and there's an openness amongst many people who do not attend church. It is still true in America today that the two single most attended Sundays in America are Christmas and Easter. And so while the numbers have drastically changed in America from 40 years ago, where we had approximately 70% of Americans being in church on any given Sunday, and now around 30%. Still on Christmas and Easter, there's a lot of folks who attend. Now, that's beginning to change a little bit as we become more and more pagan. But it's still an opportunity for outreach, for evangelism, so I have no problem with it. There are people, certainly, in the Reformed faith in who uh, do not practice it. The Puritans, for instance, did not practice Christmas. They were against it. They said you couldn't find it in the Bible, so the early American Puritans did not practice it. And there are some today who do not. Uh, it's certainly um, not a test of godliness uh, not to practice it any more than it is to practice it. Uh, we should be looking for every opportunity to be all things to all men that we might preach Christ. And to me, this is an opportunity that is certainly true, not just here in America, but in nations all around the world. Um, in terms of your final comment in your question, this family from New Hampshire, I guess they're writing from, um, you know, I don't know these two pastors that you mentioned. Hopefully they're not hateful towards Catholics. Um, we should certainly be loving in our witness to people of whatever faith they are without compromising the truth. Uh, we should be loving to a liberal Protestant who denies uh, the deity of Christ or his substitutionary atonement and makes a, a new or different gospel. We should be loving towards them, but we should preach the truth. And if there's some Roman Catholic who has erred in their belief, then we should uh, say, well, this is what the Bible says, because that is our authority. Uh, but we should do it in love and in compassion because people need Christ. And I'm a former Roman Catholic uh, who have, has been saved by the grace of God because uh, people were willing to lovingly present to me the truth of Jesus Christ. 
Um, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Joshua from Beaufort writes, I was recently seeking to do a study on the state of the dead and was attempting to tackle the issue of the nature of the soul. In the book of Hebrews, it's pretty straightforward as the immaterial seed of emotions, reasoning, and will. However, in the Greek, there is a metaphysical meaning that doesn't appear in the Hebrew as it pertains to the word uh, suka or psyche in the Greek transliteration. Does the metaphysical definition apply when comparing to the Hebrew word nefesh, or should it be ruled out due to the conflict it poses with regard to the book of Hebrews? Well, this is an interesting question. We haven't had one like this in some time. But I teach a course on... I, I, uh, I, I we, need to correct myself. I, I kept saying the book of Hebrews. It, I had modified in that. Hebrew. It was, it in Hebrew. It should have been I, in I Hebrew. I understood yeah. that. Um, there are um, two camps of what... Uh, in my course on anthropology, I deal with the subject of dichotomy and trichotomy. Is man a two-part being or a three-part being? And some of it is somewhat semantical. Is man made up of body and soul, or is man made up of body, soul, and spirit? And so those who say, well, man is made up just of body and soul, they're called dichotomous, two parts. They say man has two parts. You can cut him in two, which is the word dicha means, to cut in two, or trichotomous, you cut him in three. Well, it is interesting that God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God distinguishes man from the animal world. Uh, you never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer or in worship. That's something that's unique to man. God made us in the image and likeness of himself. With that said, sometimes the immaterial portion of man, because in the broadest sense, you could describe man, well, there's the physical material part that you can touch, his skin, his, his heart, his lungs, his eyes, his hair. But then there's the immaterial portion of man. And in the broadest sense, that is simply called the soul. So Jesus, in the broadest sense, will describe it in that fashion when he says in Mark chapter 8, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Um, that's in reference to the immaterial portion. Um, but with that said, the scripture, when it defines the soul, further refines it in a more specific sense in passages like First um, Thessalonians chapter 5. There the apostle Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there he describes man in three parts. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews does do something very similar in Hebrews chapter four when he's describing the unbelief of Israel and the nature of God's word. And he says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If the soul and the spirit are the same, then how can you divide them? And yet he says the word of God is able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. So maybe in a more specific sense, we could describe the soul of man as uh, a suke is the Greek word. It, we get our word psychology from it and psychic and other words. Um, but the suke or the soul, we might describe in a specific sense as the mind, will, and emotions. But when a person is born again, their spirit that has been dead 
what Paul calls their inner man is quickened, it's made alive. And so God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within their soul, their mind, will, and emotions, and they're made alive. They are, in Jesus's words, born again. So man really is a three-part person. And dichotomists would not dismiss that man has a soul and a body, and, and part of his soul is his spirit. So it just becomes semantical. Um, and it really doesn't change anything. It's interesting to think about, though, because um, when you think of our salvation, what happened at in the book of Genesis is, is reversed when we're saved. Uh, the day you eat from the tree, God warned, you will die. And so man immediately died in his spirit. The light went out, so to speak. All of a sudden, for the first time ever, this couple who had been naked and did not know it, they're aware of their nakedness and their shame. Um, they died immediately in their spirit. They began to age in their bodies and their soul began to degenerate. Uh, and so they immediately died in their spirit. They began to progressively die in their mind, will, and emotions. Man is not described as getting better, but worse. And really, as you see people go through life, just experience gives testimony to that. You see a little child, there's a certain innocence, but as they go through the years without Christ, that innocence can begin to change and the depraved nature of man can show its ugly head. So they immediately died in the spirit. They progressively began to degenerate in their spirit and ultimately they would die in their body. Man, for the first time, began to get old. When you are born again, you are immediately made alive in the spirit. Your inner man is quickened, Paul says. You're born again. You are progressively becoming more like Christ as you grow in Christ. And so your mind, will, and emotions are brought under the authority of Scripture. And so Paul exhorts us that we are to be renewed in our thinking through the Bible. And ultimately, our body will be resurrected in a new glorified body. So in that respect, this uh, issue of man being in three parts is really important, especially as it relates to our salvation. And I cover this in our course on anthropology. If you're interested in some of the courses that we offer in our Institute of Biblical Studies, go to searchthescriptures.org for more details. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, Suzanne from St. Helena Island writes, I was watching toddler boys play today and was reminded of the fact that Jesus was once a toddler. Since he was fully human and fully God, how did he remain sinless as a child? Did he never throw a tantrum or get into things he wasn't allowed when he was that age? Well, um, the Bible does say he, <clears throat> there were aspects of things that he learned because he was truly human. And yet, um, anything that you might describe as sinful was never true of him. Uh, I would view a, a temper tantrum as something that is very self-centered, self-willed. And so I would say, no, Jesus never had a temper tantrum. Uh, did he do childish things? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm sure he spilled his milk if they drank milk or, you know, whatever. And he did childish things. But that's different from doing something that is sinful. And so it was really a unique family setting, if you think about it, because you have Mary and Joseph, and they have this child that comes by a supernatural conception where Joseph serves as the stepfather. But then after Jesus comes into the world, uh, they have normal relations, normal physical marital relations that the Bible describes. And on one occasion, um, the scripture says, hey, listen, your brothers and your sisters are outside and some of the brothers are named and sisters are in the plural. 
So you know that there's a family of at least seven children. And can you imagine, you know, being raised in that family and what that would be like? You know, it'd be tempting for the parents to say, why can't you be like Jesus? You know, and when some of the brothers and sisters uh, did some things that were less than honorable. Uh, But Jesus was perfect all the way through. And maybe that was some of the reason for their resentment later on. Um, Of course, God worked gloriously in in their lives, too. All right. Let's uh, let's go to the next question. All right. 525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has Neil from Arlington, Texas. He writes, What does the Bible say about God's guidelines for tithing on an inheritance that is received in the form of a cash, a cashier's check, I guess? Uh, Please keep in mind, I am not financially as astute as yourself and include any comments regarding stewardship in regards to taxation. Uh, If you can't give tax advice, then please refer to someone who can. Uh, Please comment on any deadlines for any such tithing as well so I can avoid incurring any divine punishment in regards to this. It is not my intent to spend this money, but to invest it in biblically sound ways to retain or increase its value. I don't know if this matters in the answer or not. Uh, and uh, also, please answer this on the Bible line. Um, and uh, All right, let me it. see if I can respond. Good question. Here's the general principle. Whatever God puts in your hand, you tithe off of. Uh, there are people who maybe have an employer who puts money, say, in a retirement account. It's not in their hand yet. And uh, it builds, and then they retire, and then they receive that money over the years that will come. When it's put in their hand, they tithe off of it. Uh, when it becomes income to you, we, we cover this whole issue in a course I teach, uh, Handling Money God's Way. And, uh, in fact, we require it. Uh, in premarital counseling at Community Bible Church. It's like a 130-page notebook. It's about seven hours of uh, financial counseling. And there are some good guys out there that do some financial counseling, some that kind of aim at both audiences, uh, Christian and secular. And so the fallacy of that in the Christian world is unless you really believe this is what God says about debt, about giving, about investing— then you may not really, in a long-term way, carry out some of the principles um, that some people would advocate. So I think it's very important to find out what does God say and get our minds renewed so we can hold on tight. And so this course, we deal with what the Bible says about stewardship, about saving, giving, investing, tithing. And I even talk about, you know, if uh, you have a bank account and you're, garnering interest off of uh, some investment or in a CD that you tithe on that as well, whatever God increases. And so if God blesses you and some aunt leaves you a thousand dollars and she writes you a check for it, give a hundred dollars to the work of the Lord. Uh, Certainly become acquainted with tax law if it's better to wait a month and to do it in the next year so that you can be a better steward and give more, then great. But generally speaking, when it's put in your hand, that's when you tithe off of it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay. I did want to add one thing. He, he had submitted this while we were on Christmas break, and uh, he had said he apologized for uh, the short notice, but he was only recently uh, informed of this by his personal representative. Uh, one thing that you've stressed in the past is that God is not legalistic, that no. he knows the heart. Sure he does. Sure he does. So take a deep breath, relax, enjoy the Lord. If your heart's to please him, you, you really can't go, long, All go right. wrong. 
Uh, an anonymous listener in Hardyville, South Carolina, writes, I have a granddaughter who is out of control. She smokes weed and is sexually active. A friend recommended I send her to Teen Challenge. What are your thoughts on that ministry? Well, uh, Teen Challenge has certainly helped a lot of people. They're one of many ministries like that. Um, <clears throat> they're set up in different states uh, in different ways. Um, and some people have sent their children there looking for a solution, and they haven't always found it. Uh, ultimately, the problem of the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so unless they reach the heart, they're not going to really do anything. So like some of them, you pay money to go to. So I think of one family who actually took a second mortgage out of their home. They spent $36,000 to send their child to a Teen Challenge ministry in Florida. And within a month or two after they got out, the child was right back into the same place. And so if you don't change the heart, you really are not going to change the person. And that's what Second Peter talks about. He talks about a dog that returns to his vomit. And he also speaks of a pig in the same fashion where, again, he's speaking of apostates, where he says, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment. And so it's happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So the nature of a pig is to go into the mud and you can clean the pig all up on the outside and put a ribbon around him and perfume him up for the county fair. But when he comes home, he's going right back to the mud because that's his nature. And so ultimately the answer is to reach this child with the gospel. Now I will say that some parents are in churches in grandparents that are less than faithful to the word of God. And what the child is rejecting is not Christianity, but a poor caricature of it, or maybe not necessarily a poor caricature of it, but an immature character caricature of it, where the people have not really grown because they're not being taught and the word of God's not being opened. And your chance of trying to reach that child is significantly lessened. So you find the best church you can find and become a part of it. And, um, you know, if you're paying the bills in that home or you're over that child, then you just say, this is what we do. Um, we go to church and make sure you're in the healthiest church that that child can possibly be in. Pray earnestly, maybe pray and fast. Maybe the Lord would lead you to a ministry like Teen Challenge. Um, and God certainly could use it. And again, some of them are structured differently where there's a minimal cost. Some are very expensive. Uh, just depends. Um, so you're going to have to seek the Lord for specific wisdom. Get some good pastoral counseling. Um, make sure you go to a good pastor and see if you can get some help. Let's go to the next question. I think we have time for maybe a couple more. Yeah. Dr. Brogy, uh, this person writes, I know when Jesus comes back that uh, he'll raise the dead. Is it okay to be cremated and have our ashes spread in the ocean and or in a garden? Love listening to your sermons um, and thank you for all you do. If you want to uh, hear a more expanded answer, I preached through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, and when we came to Sarah's death, if I recall, it was Genesis 25, I dealt with this whole subject of cremation. Um, general principle, don't cremate. Um, God's design is not for us to cremate, but to bury our loved ones. And I know it might be a little more expensive, but so what? Uh, and there are some alternatives, too, that you can do to significantly save some money. You can even buy a casket in advance if you want through Costco and order it online. 
And many times when you go into the funeral room showroom, um, they don't always show you some of the cheaper models. I mean, you can literally have a pine box and uh, find one and spend a lot less money in the whole process than what some people do. But in Scripture, God gives us a model. All of the patriarchs were buried, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives. Uh, Joseph was buried. Um, They uh, create a model for us to mimic. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 likens the burial of a loved one uh, to the planting of, of the seed in the ground. You put a dead seed in the ground, but you're looking with a sense of expectation that life is going to come out of that seed. And so we are affirming that when we bury our loved ones. In the New Testament, saints who die were always buried. Uh, John the Baptist, when he was beheaded, they buried him. Ananias and Sapphira, disobedient Christians, but they buried them. Um, When God himself performs a funeral, he buries Moses. He, the Lord, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, buried Moses. That's what the scripture says. So if God had Moses buried, could we not have, I mean, what better example is there than that? I mean, that's what we should do. Not to mention practically, when you cremate and your pastor does your funeral and there's no body there, and there's just a picture or whatever, that funeral loses so much punch. And you ought to have your funeral planned. Uh, You ought to have it written out in terms of, I want this scripture read, or I want this letter read. Maybe you would even write a letter that you want some pastor or loved one to read on your behalf. Um, Giving your, you know, expressed desire to see the people attending again at every funeral I preach virtually everyone there are lost people sometimes scores of lost people and it's your last chance to be a witness to them you know in some families the only time they ever get together is a wedding or a funeral and so they all come together wow preach the gospel at that funeral I I just did my brother's funeral a few months ago and What an opportunity it was. There were some cousins and relatives I had not seen in years, and they were all there. And it was an opportunity to share the claims of Christ with them. And when that casket is there, the reality of death and the end product of sin is just visible and it's clear. And it just has so much more punch for the preacher to be able to share the gospel. So lay aside some money now. Uh, Go ahead and order your casket off of Costco. Put it up in the attic if you need to and put a note in your file so your wife knows where to find it and uh, plan in advance. I'm not in the funeral business and some people think, oh man, you're, you're making these people money. There are some options, but spend the money. Uh, This is your opportunity uh, to preach the gospel one last time through your own funeral. We're out of time today. We had a lot of questions that came in and some that we didn't get to, but there's always another week if God will give us breath, and we hope for that. Men's Wildlife Supper coming up a week from Friday. One of the best communicators in America and a very special guest that everyone within the sound of my voice will know the name of this one represented. So you don't want to miss this Wildlife Supper. Go online and register cbcofbuford.org.